When your child is struggling, as a parent, you need support. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. I'm at the 46th Annual Psychotherapy Associates Winter Symposium. This is in Colorado Springs, and once again, I get my hands on the experts. The men and women who are speaking at this conference, the, the, the other people having booths here, this is where all the experts in the industry of mental health and addiction and recovery gather to share the information they have, and I want to get it into your hands. So thank you for joining me on this week's episode of Beyond Risk and Back. This is my last podcast of today, and I'm really excited because I got a I got a uh, an old friend on. It's been, it's been a guest a few times, um, and I and I want parents. I want you to know that if this is your first uh, connection with Michael Pipich, great. Um, and if you like what he has to say, I want you to go back and listen to our full hour show. And then we did a show as well at the Winter Symposium last year. Um, but I love. I love Michael's work. His book is Owning Bipolar, and we're going to straight talk bipolar because uh, we get a lot of families uh, who have just received the, the news. Their kid is bipolar, and they, they don't know what it means, and I thought it was just trauma. And, like this, this is, and bipolar is one of the big ones, right? we got ADHD, bipolar. These are the things that lead very clearly towards um, addiction. And Michael, you've always been, you're, you're, you're straightforward, but you're still so compassionate and loving. So thank you for coming back to Beyond Risk and Back. Your hour long show was very popular. Um, and I'm really glad to have you anytime you want to talk to my, no, my it, parents. It's so great to be back with you, Aaron. Thanks so much for having me again. My, anytime, Michael. So <laughs> let's jump in and, and let's, let's just talk about bipolar because you said off the air you want to start with some of the cold hard facts so let's get into it you you know the routine so to start with and i think so important particularly for parents to understand for families to understand and and of course for the patients themselves is that bipolar disorder is a specific type of mood disorder that has genetic foundations we know that the predominant cause for bipolar in any individual is genetic. In other words, it's hereditary. It's passed through one's genes, through the DNA. Uh, if somebody has mental illness in their family, be it bipolar disorder or any other kind of mental illness, uh, a person uh, could have that specific type or set of genes. We know there's probably about 30 genes or so associated with bipolar disorder. Okay. And, and that's passed along. And, and it's important to understand that for a couple of different reasons. First of all, that when, it, when somebody has bipolar disorder we, and we come to eventually understand it, recognize it and diagnose and begin the treatment, that person has been carrying bipolar disorder within them from the very beginning of their life. And it has had some uh, influence and sometimes a great amount of influence, but at least some influence in terms of how they see themselves and how they see the world around them in those extremes of mania on one side, depression on the other. And so those extremes is how that person develops their concept of self and the world around them. How does this show up in, in little kids? Because you know certainly we see a lot of uh, uh, diagnoses in adolescence where parents are saying, this is, you know, I thought this was kind of some normal teen swings, but mm -hmm. this is intense. But you said they've been carrying this with them since the beginning. So I have a question about how does bipolar show in little kids? 
A, a very interesting study that came out a few years ago is something I like to cite um, in, in talking, in, in addressing that very issue yeah. of very young kids. In fact, uh, this study is a very good um, um, method and structure for this study using preschoolers, three wow, to okay. four years old, yeah. right in that, that time frame, who had been um, accurately diagnosed as having bipolar disorder, uh, including having family history of it. Okay. And so um, what we found with those young children who identify with bipolar disorder is that they would have more excitability, higher levels of m emotional reactivity, and longer periods compared to uh, kids who did not have bipolar disorder. So we expect little kids to be excited around playtime. Maybe they're given a toy or a doll or something like that, and, and they could play with it and they could have fun and they could be elated with it. But we would expect that most kids, when they put it down and they go to eat or they go to rest or whatever, they kind of bring it down. But kids, little kids with bipolar disorder, we found, extend those periods of time of excitability and joy and of the emotion of sadness as well. So if you take the kid doll away and you're saying now it's time to go eat, it's one thing that they throw a little fit and then start eating. Right. It's another thing if, what are we talking about, three hours later it's still going, a day later? What, what's our length? It could take hours longer. We okay. wouldn't expect a day or okay. so. But, but um, the, uh, the difference was very significant, okay. particularly in lengths and intensity, the durational intensity of joy and sadness okay. and anger. So those three emotions were more extensive in the little ones with bipolar disorder compared to the cohort group that had uh, no identified bipolar disorder. Okay, so. and I have another question and then I'll let you go back on and get some of the hard hard truths that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. Does it, does the, the genetic aspect, does it skip a generation? If a parent is looking at their kid, are they saying, you know what, my mom was like this? Or is it direct? Mom's got it too, grandma had it, great grandma had it, and now daughter's got it. Or are we seeing it dormant in some generations? Sometimes you do and sometimes you don't. Okay. Sometimes the bipolar parent will have an offspring with bipolar disorder. Okay. Um, I, I've, in my own just observation over the years, I've, I've noticed that if a family has three or four kids uh, and one of the parents had bipolar disorder, there's a good chance one of those three or four kids will probably have it. Got it. Okay. And it's pretty consistent with the research and the data. Okay. Certainly if you have a grandparent, uh, your risk of bipolar uh, maybe a little bit less, but it's still pretty significant. Okay, so we've talked, there's, there's a genetic factor. Uh, yes. It's showing up, they've been carrying it the whole time. Yes. What else are some of these hard truths of it? Well, as, as a child grows um, and develops into his or her um, um, adolescence, like we would call, like you have you know, young children, like right. we call preschoolers, right, then right. they kind of go prepubescent, you know, through like grade school and so forth. And then they approach middle school, and then they start developing towards adolescence. Okay. Um, the, we can expect that if the disorder is not identified, certainly maybe identified but not treated properly, we would expect that the symptoms become more significant and, in fact, can be more troubling and more disturbing. Okay. Okay. And so the disorder itself doesn't go away just because it, a child is growing. In fact, we know that bipolar disorder gets worse over the course of the entire individual's 
lifetime if not treated properly. How, okay, so so I guess we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, we get a few more uh, uh, facts in, but mm -hmm. when we talk about it getting worse untreated, does adolescence exacerbate the issue? Does it, it, it kind of, it's there, you see it, there's those long periods, but then when the hormones start kicking in stuff, this thing goes haywire, or is it a steady incline the whole way up? No, we, we would expect that the hormonal changes and all of the various factors that go into adolescence and development around that time of life really can bring out those symptoms okay. uh, significantly uh, and really force them to, to become uh, disturbing, troubling, and noticeable in that young person's life. And very often, that's when it becomes more diagnosable, if right. you will, because yeah, yeah. because the presentation of those symptoms tend to be pushed forward, as you said, by hormonal changes, uh, social pressures, life pressures, <clears throat> the feeling that that individual has to figure out his or her life going forward, all the kind of typical things we expect in adolescence. But when you have that bipolar gene and all of those pressures pushing all of those things out, that's when um, the symptoms can be not only very noticeable, but um, very troubling and present all kinds of potential problems for that young person and for his or her family as well. Let's talk about the criteria itself. What are the signs? What are the symptoms? So one of the thing to, one things to look forward uh, for to, uh, towards is um, what we would call cyclical depression. Okay. So we would expect that a young person may have a period of sadness or uh, disturbance for some period of time, but uh, kids with bipolar disorder will often have periods of depression uh, uh, one, two, three, four times in their life, um, even before we see evidence of, of mania symptoms. Okay. So cyclical depression is a big key, uh, and very severe depression, um, thoughts of suicide, self-harm, maybe actions in those directions as well, as, as well as um, you know, more uh, above and beyond experimentation with drugs or alcohol okay. to really something that we would describe as excessive partying, excessive self-medication, perhaps, uh, for whatever their depressive symptoms. And then on the manic side, excitability, irritation, maybe outbursts of anger and rage that go in episodes. So they're not consistent that we see all the time. But when these episodes begin to emerge, uh, again, they can be very disturbing. They can interfere with academic and social uh, situations in life, um, as well as, as I mentioned, suicide is a big risk. Among you you people had with some bipolar. statistics around that in our last call about yeah. how many, you know, uh, uh, bipolar people become suicide. Like, it was astounding. Yes, we know that about one-fourth of all deaths by suicide is likely to be bipolar-related. Wow, and, and we're talking about untreated or diagnosed? Well, you see, that, that's, that's such a good question because we can identify certain aspects of bipolar disorder um, and maybe even diagnose it, but is that person really getting the right treatment? So wow, there's a lot of factors wow, that yeah, go yeah, into yeah, that. Sure. It, it's, a, it's a complicated kind of situation. We also know that um, the, uh, the average time that it takes for anyone, young person, adult, older person, to be treated for bipolar disorder um, after their first diagnosable, recognizable bipolar mood event is about 10 years. 10 years? Yes. 
Uh-huh. And um, if you if you um, familiar with Jane Pauley, yes. uh, the, she, I think we see her on TV once in a while, but yes. she's been a journalist for many years and hosted the Very Today successful. Show. Um, we know that her uh, bipolar 2 disorder was diagnosed when she was 50 years old. That she had ta- spoken about how her bipolar affected her whole life. So th- these kinds of things um, um, can be prevented by knowledge, by recognition, by early uh, treatment. You know, if any of your parents listening believe that their young person is, is going through these sort of uh, episodes of depression, excitability, anger, um, it's, it's perhaps easy, a little too easy at times, to just assume that it's uh, it's adolescent gone haywire, yeah, maybe yeah. a little bit, you know, as opposed to maybe something that really deserves clinical attention, so that that young person doesn't have to struggle with his or her life going into maybe their college years, going into their early adult years, going into relationships of their adult life. That if we recognize and prevent. Um, the, 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 the lapse of time, what I often call the 10-year gap in treatment. Right. Uh, they can have successful, happy lives and really live their personal gifts that have been given to them and, and they've been able to work towards without uh, bipolar disorder interfering with their success and their accomplishments in life. We'll get back to our guest in just a second. I got to make a quick shout out to two organizations that have really helped out Fire Mountain and Beyond Risk and Back at our booth here at the Winter Symposium. First is Guayaki Yerba Mate. They have given us cases and cases of this amazing, incredible drink to hand out to other people, to get people in the industry of mental health and addiction to understand the benefits of Guayaki Yerba Mate and brain recovery, brain building. I could, I could spend an entire episode, which I did, by the way, with one of the co-founders, David Carr. So go listen to that Beyond Risk and Back episode. And you can always Google benefits, scientific benefits, scientific research behind Yerba Mate. And you will understand why we give this drink out to people in the industry. This is a hidden gem that is getting more and more popular. So please support us being supported by Guayaki Yerba Mate and go pick yourself up a can and get some for your teens. And then second, I need to thank Psychotherapy Associates Winter Symposium people themselves for letting us be here and broadcasting this show and helping us email all of the speakers to get the information, the, 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 the new cutting edge research in brain development, addiction recovery, mental health. And I get to interview these incredible people and get their information into your heads, parents. So thank you to Winter Symposium and thank you to Guayaki. Okay, let's get back to our guest. Michael, is there uh, a baseline? Is, you know, because I remember when this was called manic depressive disorder, you know, and now we're talking bipolar. Um, but, but is something for a parent to look for is that it doesn't seem that there's ever any relief. It's, it's either this mania or this really dark depression. So bipolar disorder is really defined by specific mood episodes, okay? 
of mania and depression. And then there's different forms of mania. There's different levels of depression. And in fact, in my book, Owning Bipolar, I talk about the seven bipolar mood zones. Okay. And, uh, and I think that really helps patients and families to be able to identify where that individual who is uh, suffering with bipolar disorder and then eventually getting treated, where he or she may um, fall into those mood right. zones at any given well, time. I, I seem to remember one that you would talk about was they, they literally almost go into a godlike state where they'll do really risky behavior and extreme behavior where they, they feel invulnerable at times and then crash into another deep and dark about how much they, they suck and they're a terrible person. Right. Like, so what you're talking about is really that full-blown manic um, mood zone that they may be in where they feel like they're on top of the world. Yeah. We call that grandiosity, right? Yeah. They're very grandiose. They feel bulletproof. They feel like they can drive as fast as they want on the freeway or take all kinds of chances with with drugs, alcohol, sex. maybe sex indiscretions, shopping sprees, uh, whatever the case may be. Oh, and, it, and you even talked about like like them coming home and there's you know Amazon boxes stacked up and they don't even remember shopping that much, but they've gone on this massive binge. Right, exactly. Yeah. Only to find out, like when you mentioned, they going they they kind of come down from that towards that baseline mood zone, where. Um, and this is very often where denial kind of takes over okay. to some extent. But they can also, at that point, recognize that maybe some of the things that they have done has had uh, you know, some consequences to it, right? Even though they may not remember everything that they, uh, that they did during that, the height of that manic episode. But I think when you, to your question about that baseline, right. what's really important to understand that in between phase of between mania and depression, very often... Uh, people kind of think everything's going to be okay now. Like whatever happened is over with. And what I try to remind uh, individuals who have bipolar disorder, and particularly family members, parents, most particularly, is that that's really the best time to get help. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and if you can, because what, what we tend to do, all of us, is that we can take this big sigh of relief. Oh, everything's going to be okay now. Or, right. Or whatever happened seems to be done. You know, she, she doesn't seem like she's depressed anymore. Maybe she's things are better. She's out of the woods. Yeah, or he, mm. you know, he went through this phase where he was doing all this crazy stuff, but now he seems like he's got it together, and whew, man, I feel so much better. But what I want to encourage, particularly parents to understand, is that's the time when we have to really get help because it, it may very well be the best time for for the child to say, okay, you know what? I'll go talk to a counselor. I'll go talk to a psychiatrist. Right. You know, I'll do that. Um, uh, when they're in the height of their mania or their, their depths of depression, they certainly may need treatment. I'm not suggesting don't do it. I get that. But yeah. what I'm saying is, is that in order to kind of get that buy-in for the, for the young patient, for the family, the loved ones, the parents, et cetera, let's do it at a time where we feel like there may be a little bit of a break before the next episode, either depression or mania, begins to manifest. I'm wondering about the the time of mania, the time of depression, and that in-between time. Are we looking at equal amounts of time, or is it varied? If they go into a six-month depression, are we going to be able to have, are we looking forward to six months of a break and then six months? Of, is there a time aspects attached to any of this? Uh, not specifically to any individual, but the thing to understand with young people is that they tend to cycle rapidly. Oh. Okay? 
when we're talking about prepubescent children and, and young adolescents, okay. um, they, they certainly can have periods of depression, periods of mania, but they tend to um, have these rapid periods of cycling of up and down and up and down. And I've seen kids do that over a course of a day. Oh. <clears throat> so most of the research we have on bipolar disorder is with adults. Okay. And with adults, starting, let's say, in late adolescence, 17, 18, and then through... Uh, a young adulthood. Emerging into, adulthood, yeah. You tend to have longer episodes of mania or depression, which make it easier to diagnose. For kids, we don't necessarily have that opportunity to say, okay, uh, because the manic episode lasted seven days, it's this kind of mania, or four days, it's this kind of mania. They may be manic for a half day or a day or a day and a half. They may be depressed for, for two, three days and then emerge from that. But it's no less serious. It's just harder to define based on what we understand about adults who have bipolar disorder and the more expected lengths of time that we see in those episodes. So again, if we see a young person, let's say 13, 14, 15 years old, and they have manic symptoms, but they're not lasting three, four, five, six days. They may last a couple of days. That's no less destructive to that individual's life as if we see two or three days of depression as opposed to two or three weeks that we might expect in an adult. They still need that same level of attention and ultimately same level of care as their adult counterparts. Uh, hard question, uh, not for you, but uh, potentially a hard answer for parents to hear. Um, can you battle uh, bipolar with good diet and exercise? and maybe some good supplements? Or does this one require this Western medicine intervention? All of the research and all of my experience and, and, and the, that of my colleagues as well, tells us that when it comes to bipolar disorder, it is a combination of mood stabilizing medication okay. and therapy specific for uh, bipolar mood swings to help that individual to stay the course of their treatment but also improve their sense of self and identity. Remember I mentioned that you carry bipolar through your life, you see life through these extremes. Very often, wow. when people go through that stabilization process, they feel different. They don't see the world now quite in those extremes. And so that world may seem somewhat alien to them. Right. So we, we as therapists have that obligation to help those individuals to develop a, a new sense of a self uh, of identity for themselves and to understand the world around them and process of life like creative and productive kinds of activities in their life that can produce results in a more stable way rather than in fits and starts based on whatever their mood episodes are the process of therapy then is a much longer proposition to help that individual to acquire that more uh, consistent sense of self in his or her life going forward. And it's also, I think, necessary for the family to be able to make those adjustments. You know, I can tell you this, Aaron, nobody of any age who is dealing with bipolar disorder wants to be looked at as an oddity. Right. And especially if they're having real authentic kinds of uh, mood um, experiences. You know, if, if, if you're being treated for bipolar disorder, 
you still can feel joy. You can still feel happiness. You can still feel anger. You can still get sad or experience grief. Yeah. You can fall in love. You can, you can get excited about things. But very often what happens is that the loved ones around that individual may look at him or her and go, are you off your meds? Ugh. You know? Have you talked to your doctor about this? So the family, I think, also needs to come together with that individual in treatment through knowledge, uh, awareness about what bipolar requires, and then go through that treatment process together to help that individual and the family develop an awareness of an authentic emotional life apart from bipolar, while also having empowering discussions if symptoms do begin to reemerge and require further attention down the line. You said something earlier that really struck me and has inspired a, a, a question that I don't know, and, and I think this is, okay, I'll just, I'm just gonna ask it. People have been, because it's a genetic thing, people have been living with the symptoms of bipolar from a very young age. What is bipolar, what does life look like through the eyes of someone who's bipolar? Because we can look at someone who's dealing with bipolar and they look and feel and act like a roller coaster at times and you can't, and being on that ride as a family member is, ex, is exhausting and you don't know what's coming and you know it's unpredictable at times. But what does life look like through the eyes of someone who's living with it personally? You know, one of, the, one of the qualities that I've found that uh, people with bipolar have shared with me, sort of that common experience, yeah. is that time is their enemy. Um, especially when they, be, they, they become acquainted with uh, mania as a source of energy and inspiration and creativity and all of these wonderful feelings. They know that that's short-lived, whether it's a matter of a couple of days or a couple of weeks wow. or a couple of months. They know that, they're gonna, um, that that's going to dissipate at some point. And so one of the things that, that is developed in, in, the, in the mind of somebody with bipolar disorder is, I got to get stuff done, you know, and, and I feel great and I can get a lot wow. of stuff done. And now some of that stuff may be very... Uh, constructive, but a lot of stuff is very destructive, um, right? Yeah, yeah. And 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 uh, and, and in terms of, of of that experience, that's where denial can really come in in terms of the destructive and impulsive aspects of it. That that person just feels like whatever they touch turns to gold, but it's not necessarily the case. But on the flip side of that is the awareness that depression can hit them at any moment, and and that is ultimately frightening for them. So. These, this is very much the common experience that develops as a person goes through their lifespan, uh, carrying that bipolar aspect to their life, ex expecting that energy and that inspiration, fearing that depression and feelings of suicide and self-destruction along the way, and turning to maybe not only denial but substance abuse and other things in, in an attempt to somehow can control that. And when people around him or her say, you know, you can't keep doing this. I want you to go to a therapist. I want you to go to a doctor. We need to deal with this. We expect, as a part of bipolar disorder, that denial, that shield to kind of protect that person's experience and the fears that belie it. Very often, that's what people tell me when they have bipolar disorder. It, it seems that living with that constant time as your enemy 
that there's always, it's going to change. Like nothing, it seems like it's going to develop into a, just a constant feeling of impermanence. Like, like nothing's forever. And that includes all the good stuff that we talk about, getting married, having children, mm. being happy, finding your career. Not going to last. That's got to be devastating. It is. It is very often. And, and I think, too, that's where uh, thoughts and feelings of suicide yeah. might also begin to creep in. And it's certainly what you just said. It, 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 makes, it, it rings true that the use of drugs to try to control the experience of life um, it's going to happen. And like I said at the beginning, it's like one of the big three, ADHD, bipolar, and BPD, borderline personality, that those are the things that so often lead to suicide and drugs and, you know, this, this, this level of thing that are behavior disorders that lead towards this. Let's, let's talk about the book for a second because it's been out for a while. Uh, you said it's doing well, but what, what I want families to get their hands on this book. What are they, what are they finding when they open it? What, are, what is the book about? One of the very first things that, that you find in the book is that bipolar disorder is nobody's fault. It's not the parent's fault. It's not the, the, the individual or the child with bipolar's fault. As I mentioned, it's a genetic disorder. Uh, I, I mentioned this a long time ago to a community group, and somebody said, well, can I curse my ancestors? Yeah. Is that okay if I can do that? And I thought, well, if that makes you feel better, can sure. Can I family tree this one back? And <laughs> but, uh, but other than that, it really is nobody's fault. It's not because of bad parenting or, you know, um, trauma and these things can certainly make it worse. Okay. But it's not the foundation of it. And so, you know, let's kind of all pull back from, from the fear and, and, and hopefully we can come together as a community to address feelings of, of shame or stigma and, and address those things and empower people to, to remember that, you know, we're not alone. And that's really one of the big messages of owning bipolar. Um, and, and the word owning is about taking responsibility. So while it's nobody's fault, it, it is the individual even if that individual with bipolar happens to be a child or adolescent, yes. to take that responsibility as, as we help and support him or her to do so, but also for parents, loved ones, siblings, um, and others to kind of come together and, and take that further step, that responsible step, not to be afraid of the diagnosis, not to be uh, overly afraid of treatments, but to gain the knowledge and, and understand what to expect in treatment going forward. So none of this feels like an ambush. None of it feels like it's coming out of nowhere and it's gonna consume our lives. But instead, we're going to own it. We're gonna take responsibility. We're gonna take control of this. You can't cure it, but you can, can take control of it together and work together for ultimate success. And, and the good news is bipolar disorder is very treatable. It, 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 it's not win, a death sentence. It, it is not. You know what? It's a life sentence in a positive way, in a healthy way. It does allow that individual to live his or her dreams in a healthy way. You know, I, I, the, the book is doing very well, and I'm very proud of it. I also have an article uh, in this uh, current issue of Psychology Today talking about creativity and bipolar and what people can do who have bipolar disorder look forward to that they're not going to lose their creative ability and their productive capabilities but reorganize their life through therapy through treatment in order to have consistent uh, success going forward in their lives and this is what everybody can look forward 
too. Uh, let's give some contact information. If a family is going, oh my God, we need to talk to this person right now, even if it's for direction to go buy the book on Amazon. <laughs> how, how are people, how can people send you a note? Uh, they can contact me through my website, michaelpipich.com. That's Michael, P-I-P-I-C-H.com. Or just put it in your search engine and you'll find uh, your way uh, to my website. You can find your way to Michael. He's all <laughs> over the place, no doubt. Absolutely. And I would love to hear from any of your listeners who have questions. Uh, they can email me. They can, they can certainly call me. That's fine, too. And we can talk about your situation and, and get you started on the right path of, of health for, for your loved one, for your family, for yourself going forward. Well, you know how Saturday Night Live have Steve Martin as and how many shows he'd been on. I just want you to know, Michael, that you're my Steve Martin. I, this was our third. Do I get a coat? You get a coat. We'll get you a nice, bright green coat. This is our third time on the air. I strongly suggest parents, uh, if you're worried about uh, your child or a loved one with bipolar, you go listen to our hour-long show because he goes in, in even more detail. Um, but get his book. And, and get online and find Michael's work everywhere. This is our third time, but it's not our last. I'll have you back anytime. Any new paper article you want to discuss and promote, Michael, I'd love to have you on your show. You're a great support for our family. So thanks for taking this time with my, my So audience. great to be with you again, uh, Aaron. Thanks uh, so much. My yeah. pleasure, Michael. We'll talk again. This has been another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Thank you so much for joining me, parents. Please remember to give us a listen, a like, a subscribe, and share us with your friends, other parents who need the support. I have a few people I'd like to thank. First is Frazier PR. I'd also like to thank Your Cause Consulting. And I need to give a shout out to Deepin Productions. As always, thank you to Mental Health News Radio for hosting this show. And I'd like to thank Guayaki. Guayaki has sponsored our booth here at the Winter Symposium. And of course, all my fans everywhere, all over the world, thank you so much for making Beyond Risk and Back a number one parenting podcast. Remember, parents, take care of yourself first, your adult relationship second, and your children third, because in that way, we do our best work with our children. I'll see you next week.